Hello, and welcome to the Denton's Real Estate Litigation Podcast. Today, we're going to focus on the Building Safety Act 2022. The Act is a substantial and witty piece of legislation. Its primary purpose is spelt out in its name, the Building Safety Act. Its aim is to make buildings safer, and in the post-Grenfell world, that is an absolute imperative. The Act impacts on all aspects of the building industry, and not just the construction industry. It is highly relevant for property owners, investors, managers, and occupiers as well. It is, in effect, regime change. Our purpose today is to get to the nub of the relevant issues arising from the legislation that impact property owners and occupiers. To guide us through the Act and its impact, we are privileged to welcome our special guest, Robert Bowker. Rob is a specialist property barrister at Tanfield Chambers. Rob has a particular expertise in dilapidations and major works. His construction background makes him a barrister of choice for property litigation matters involving structural engineers, M&E gurus, and fire safety experts. Given this, he is supremely placed to advise and advocate on matters concerning fire safety and cladding matters. He is standout in building safety and a go-to expert on the Building Safety Act. Who better then than to shine the spotlight on the seminal act, Rob Bowker? Asking Rob the key questions today will be our very own Thomas Nolan. Thomas is a first-rate solicitor with significant expertise advising on cladding and fire safety issues. Thomas, over to you. Thanks, Brian. Rob, welcome. So, just to kick us off, can you give us a brief overview of the Building Safety Act? What are the key provisions that are in force? It's a big act. It's going to be introduced bit by bit. But in terms of the key provisions that are currently in play, I think the main focus is on part five, which is a part that deals with the remediation of certain defects. And within part five, in particular sections 116 to 125, and part five works in conjunction with schedule eight. So those are the two key provisions that are in force, and that's where the main focus of attention is at the moment. Brilliant. So what are the key issues that you are being asked to advise on currently? So most of these issues arise out of Part 5 and Schedule 8. I think at the outset, it's probably important to emphasise that both Part 5 and Schedule 8 have been supplemented by secondary legislation. So the primary legislation sets out the overview, the key provisions that are actually in force. But in terms of filling in the nitty gritty detail, that's been brought in by, at the moment, two statutory instruments. There's a statutory instrument, which is 711 of 2022. That's what I call the leaseholder protection regulations. And there's a statutory instrument, 8. of 2022, and that's what I call the leaseholder information regulations. So in addition to Part 5 and Schedule 8, there are these two statutory instruments, each containing a suite of regulations. So in terms of the key issues arising out of that legislation, what's happened over the last few years, and in particular the last few months with the uh, legislation, is that the work has come in different waves so that there have been topical issues that have come into play at various stages. The the current wave, as I see it, which is just about to break, is in terms of remediation contribution orders. And these are applications that are made by 
what's called an interested party, and they're made to the first tier tribunal, so the, the property tribunal that we all know deals regularly with things like service charge disputes and leasehold enfranchisement and that type of specialist residential property work. So the application we made to the first tier tribunal, that I think is going to be a very, very big point of interest over the next few months, if not years. So who will be on the receiving end of these remediation contribution orders? So there are two types of application. There's a remediation order itself and a remediation contribution order. So the remediation order is effectively an application for a statutory mandatory injunction or an order for specific performance. So it's forcing a party to carry out works. The remediation contribution order, as the name indicates, is for a contribution, so it's for money. And that's where I think the majority of the work will be over the next few months. So what will happen is that the interested party and there's a list of who might make the application. The interested party makes the application, fills in the form. There's a standard form that's been produced for use in the first tier tribunal. And then the respondent is the person from whom the applicant is asking for the money. And that's in a very simple way is how it's going to work. So the Act actually prescribes who could be liable pursuant to a contribution order. Yeah, so it's important to distinguish between who might make the application and against whom the application might be made. Under the legislation in section 124, the interested person, so the person who might make the application, is either going to be the Secretary of State, so that's the minister, the regulator, so that's the regulator that's been set up to regulate the industry by the Building Safety Act, a local authority, so that could be a council, a fire and rescue authority, so the fire brigade, a person with a legal or equitable interest in the relevant building or any part of it. So that could be a landlord, it could be a leaseholder, or it could be, in the case of a tripartite lease, a management company. It probably couldn't be a right-to-manage company because that is an entity that doesn't have a legal or equitable interest in the building because it's appointed by statute to carry out management functions. Or the final category is any person prescribed by regulations. So regulations could be introduced at some point by statutory legislation to provide another category or categories of interested person. So, for example, an application might be made by a management company, which is a party to a lease, against, for example, the landlord or against an entity that's associated with the landlord if the landlord is part of the landlord's group or perhaps against a developer, so that the party that originally constructed the building. So you can sort of see how this is going to pan out. It will be somebody frustrated or disgruntled because they can't carry out the work that they want to do. They haven't got the money and they seek the contribution for all or part of the cost of the works from one of those entities like the landlord or like the developer. So how does the Act interplay with current leasehold obligations to pay for things such as replacement cladding or a waking watch that would normally be recoverable under the standard service charge provisions? So if we consider those two costs separately, the first is cladding and the second is not, a relevant tenant under the Act is a tenant under a qualifying lease and a qualifying lease includes tenants who live in the flat in question. So there's a familiar only or principal home test, and tenants who aren't, in effect, asset rich. So where they don't own another dwelling in the UK 
or not more than two dwellings in the UK apart from the flat in question. The Act's designed fundamentally to protect people who live in their flat and who aren't asset rich. As long as you meet those criteria, there's an absolute prohibition on service charge for cladding work. In the case of Waking Watch, for example, the leaseholder protections will apply in principle because they're probably a relevant measure in relation to a relevant defect, in relation to a relevant risk, because they concern a risk to the safety of people in the building arising from the spread of fire. Schedule 8 contains the various leaseholder protections that relate to both cladding work, and that's tucked away in paragraph 8, and non-cladding work. So the basic idea is that developers and landlords pay, but leaseholders only pay as a last resort, and then subject to the various protections as set out in Schedule 8. So service charge recovery in those instances depend on whether the landlord is asset rich. Is there a threshold as to what is rich and what isn't? Yes, so the basic threshold is determined in paragraph three of Schedule 8, and that's headed up. No service charge is payable if the landlord meets the contribution condition. So this is how the landlord's financial ability to fund work is determined. And there's a calculation mechanism. And basically what you do is that you tot up the landlord's net worth and you apply it to the number of buildings that the landlord has within its portfolio. And then you decide whether it's sufficiently asset rich. So the figure is N when N is the number of buildings that it owns times 2 million. And then you can determine whether that particular landlord falls within the contribution condition. And and landlords, only landlords that do fall within the contribution condition are essentially vulnerable to being uh, required to pay. So just to reiterate then, because I do think it is important to set out the distinction, the qualification of asset rich applies to non-cladding work and the ability of a landlord being able to recover through the service charges costs for non-cladding work. But for cladding work, there is an absolute prohibition of recovery from a leaseholder. Yeah, so that key provision in relation to cladding remediation work is in paragraph 8 of Schedule 8, which says that there's no service charge payable for cladding remediation. But when it comes to non-cladding remediation for, for relevant work, and relevant work is essentially building safety work, there can be recovery, but it's recovery that's subject to all the protections that are laid out in Schedule 8. So the way to understand the leaseholder protections is to go through Schedule 8 paragraph by paragraph, and there you see the various protections, of which one is paragraph 3, which is no service charge is payable if the landlord meets the contribution condition. So Leaseholders are protected if the landlord is asset rich. And you can see the common sense rationale behind that, which is that where the landlord has enough money to be able to pay for the work, it should do so. Where it doesn't have enough money to pay for the work, it shouldn't do so. If it can't pay for the work, then there are various sources of alternative payment. But the very, very last resort is the leaseholder through the service charge. So we will come on to one of the sources of alternative payment in a minute, but just before we come on to that, can I just clarify, will this apply to all buildings? Yes, but 
bearing in mind that the protections given to tenants in respect of cladding work are intended to assist owner-occupiers and those who are not asset-rich. That aside, the legislation is intended to stop tenants paying for cladding work and to strictly control payment for non-cladding work. The controls operate through the protections set out in Schedule 8 and, in effect, turn the obligation to pay on its head. So developers and landlords are the principal source of funding, not the tenants. The way to understand the leaseholder protections is, I think, to go through Schedule 8 systematically and to see whether each protection applies to a given situation. So you start with paragraph 2 which is no service charge is payable for a defect for which the landlord or an associate of the landlord is responsible. And you work your way through paras 2 to 12, one by one, seeing whether the protections apply to the particular facts of your case. In basic terms, the developers pay and the landlords who are asset rich pay, including landlords who are part of an asset rich group, even if the particular landlord is, for example, a one building special purpose vehicle only intended to collect the ground rents, but is part of a much larger group with significant assets. But the last resort is intended to be the leaseholder. And then what about commercial tenants in mixed use buildings? Do they get any protection? So this is intended to apply to residential leaseholders. So the way that it works is that the legislation applies to what are called qualifying leases. And a qualifying lease is the long lease of a single dwelling in a relevant building. So that obviously excludes commercial tenants because they're not dwellings. The tenant is under the lease liable to pay a service charge. So it's a conventional long lease with a service charge mechanism by which the landlord or the management company can recover the costs of major works. And the lease was granted before the 14th of February 2022. So that's the criteria that apply um, to establish whether it's a qualifying lease. So the commercial tenants don't get direct protection in that regard. But there is an important provision within Schedule 8 that does give indirect protection to commercial tenants. And that's this. If the landlord or the management company cannot recover through the service charge, the full amount of the cost of the work, that additional cost can't be sought against the commercial tenants. So the commercial tenants are protected in that they can't be forced to pay the top up. That's the way it works to their benefit. And then there's another indirect protection for commercial tenants, and that is that the first tier tribunal can double hat which means that they can deal with both residential matters and non-residential matters because judges can wear their first-tier tribunal judge's hat as a residential tribunal judge, but they can also wear a hat as a county court judge. And in some instances, you can actually litigate perhaps involving both residential and commercial parts. But the basic rule is the legislation is designed to protect residential leaseholders, not commercial tenants. So one of the alternative sources of payment is the Building Safety Fund. Um, So what is it? Uh, The Building Safety Fund was established in order to pay for cladding remediation work. So essentially, it's only cladding 
remediation work that is going to be supported by the fund. The fund is, to all intents and purposes, the taxpayer funding the cost of cladding remediation work. It essentially does not cover other costs. There is a fund that will support the cost of waking watch, but not the cost of waking watch directly. So not the invoices that are raised by the security company that's actually providing the personnel who are carrying out the waking watch. What it did was to fund the introduction of alarm systems that obviated the need for a waking watch at all. So that was a fund that was available. What the fund doesn't do is to fund the cost of non-cladding related work. So a classic example and a problem that affects many, many buildings across the country is balconies with timber flooring. So the fund will not cover that work. That's going to have to be sought from other sources, for example, from the developers who put the balconies up in the first place when the building was constructed, or from the landlord, if the landlord is asset rich and meets the contribution condition and so on, and as a last resort against the, against the leaseholders. So these funds predated the Building Safety Act. Yeah. What is the position following the Act coming into force? So I think the most important consideration is probably the pledge. The pledge is a pledge that was given by many of the major developers and sets out what is effectively an assurance that the cost of certain remediation works are going to be carried out voluntarily. And what has happened in essence is that where the fund was previously going to pay for the cost of that work, that has now been switched from the fund, so switched from the taxpayer. And instead of the public purse funding that work, it has now been handed over to those who have committed themselves to pay for the cost of that work through signing the pledge. So that's an important consideration. And as you can imagine, that links in with the question of how much is going to be paid by the developers who have signed the pledge and for what work. Is it going to be precisely the same work that was mandated in terms of the fund or is it going to be different? Are they going to be spending exactly what the fund was going to commit to the cost of the works or is it going to be different? And that that's an important point of consideration at the moment. When I mentioned earlier waves of issues or waves of litigation, another wave that's probably about to come crashing down is the question of whether the scope of the work that's going to be carried out pursuant to the pledge is going to cover completely the cost of works, particularly in the light of PAS 9980, which I think we're going to touch on shortly. Yeah, so before we touch on that, what happens with the current applications to the fund that were made pre the act coming into force, but haven't been properly determined? It appears that they're going to go through. So if, for example, a pledge by a developer has not been signed in relation to a particular building, or if the building cannot be remediated by a developer because the developer perhaps can't be located, or by a landlord because the landlord isn't asset rich or not part of an asset rich group, then the fund will still pay for the cost of the works. And so those applications that have already been made, and the fund reopened again fairly recently, those applications to the fund are moving through. They have, however, as I mentioned, been affected where a developer has signed the pledge and there's a switch from fund funding to pledge funding. 
Okay, so with pledge funding, you mentioned that one of the things that will be offered dispute is the scope of what works need to be covered, and you mentioned the um, PAS nine nine eight zero, a really catchy title. Yeah. What is it? So it's important to distinguish between an EWS one form and PS9980. So an EWS1 form is simply a form that is an industry-based form. It has no statutory basis at all. And it was a form that was introduced in order to give comfort to lenders as to whether a particular building was secure enough for transactional purposes. PS9980 sets out a method for assessing the building safety risk of a particular building. So it it will classify buildings as low risk, medium risk, and high risk. A qualified fire engineer will carry out an assessment of the building, carry out the assessment through what is called a five-step assessment. So it runs through these five steps that are set out in PS9980, and then determine how safe or unsafe the building is. And the key factor that determines the risk of the building is the safety of the occupiers. So whereas previously uh, the government guidance, the published guidance on assessing the safety of a building focused on the fabric of the building, so the integrity of the building itself, the, the bricks and mortar, the cladding, the systems by which the building was constructed, this focuses on the safety of the occupiers. In addition to that, it also focuses on work that is proportionate to carry out. Where, for example, balconies have timber decking, but are not stacked one on top of the other, but instead are staggered, it might not be proportionate to require the timber to be removed and replaced, even where the decking isn't protected from underneath, for example, by a soffit, because the huge expense isn't proportionate having regard to the risk to the occupiers. So essentially, PAS 9980 might dramatically change the scope and the cost of the work. So whereas previously it might have been necessary to spend one or two million pounds changing the timber decking on the balconies, a holistic assessment under PAS 9980 might come to a different conclusion. So where this has an effect on funding is that If you're a developer who signed the pledge, you will want to carry out or have carried out a PAS 9980 assessment to decide exactly how much you're going to spend and what you're going to spend the money on. That means delay, because as a signatory to the pledge, you may well want to say, well, hang on a minute. We've previously determined that this work needs to be done, but now we've carried out a PAS 9980 assessment it actually seems different. Whereas previously, £10 million needed to be spent on the building, we've now carried out a more proportionate assessment, and our fire engineer says that it needs to be X work rather than Y work, and that's going to come in at £7.5 million. So obviously, a developer is going to want to carry out a 9980 assessment to determine precisely what work needs to be done in accordance with that assessment. That's all leading to delay and to some extent to frustration. And when I mentioned one of the waves of litigation, one of the waves of litigation might be applications for remediation contribution orders where it's being perceived by leaseholders 
that there's been an unnecessary delay in carrying out the work. From the perspective of the developer, they will see it as a necessary delay in order to carry out this new form of assessment. And one of the problems with carrying out the assessment is that there are a small pool of qualified fire engineers able to carry out the assessments, which again means delay, which again means frustration on the part of leaseholders. So how do you think the Act will play out in practice? So I think that there are going to be lots of mistakes in the certification process. The certification process is difficult, it's time-consuming, but the time constraints under which particularly a landlord has to produce its certificates is small. The consequences of getting your certificate wrong are serious because they effectively put a stop on your ability to recover for the cost of non-cladding work. So people are going to be dealing with mistakes in certificates, I think, for the next few months and years. That's the first thing. Secondly, I think that there's going to be a lot of secondary legislation introduced, which is going to be difficult, complicated, hard to interpret, and leads to possibly litigation in the first tier tribunal. And then finally, I think that the work will get done and it will be paid for, but I think not as quickly as people perhaps expect. So just to summarise, certificates, lots of mistakes. Secondary legislation, lots of complexity. And thirdly, the work will get done, but I think unpaid for, but I think more slowly than people expect or, or hope for. So finally, then, what would be your three takeaways for clients? I think the first takeaway is not going to be popular. I think that whatever your position, whether you're a developer or a managing agent or a leaseholder, whatever your interest in the Building Safety Act, I don't think you can avoid committing an hour of your time to read through part five and schedule eight and reviewing the two key statutory instruments. It's time that you will never get back but it's an hour that's really, really worthwhile. Even if you read them and, and think that it's gobbledygook, at least you'll have familiarised yourself with the way that it's set out. So point one, I don't think you can avoid reading the legislation. And it's much better to look at the legislation than it is to read anything that's telling you what the legislation says. So the legislation itself. I also think related to that is keep an eye on FTT decisions. So keep an eye on the government website that produces the first tier tribunal decisions. And there are quite good search mechanisms through it. So if you put in remediation contribution order or you put building safety act, you come up with the cases that have been decided. So keep an eye on the tribunal decisions that have been published. So that's the first thing. The second thing in some ways contradicts. The second thing is that the government has produced a lot of guidance notes, guidance material on the legislation. So in addition to looking at the legislation itself and the FTT decisions, I would recommend downloading and having on your desktop or your laptop the government guidance on each of the major points of the legislation. So, for example, there's a guidance note called Building Safety Leasehold Protections Guidance for Leaseholders. It runs to five pages and it was published on the 21st of July this year. That's an ideal starting point to help you to understand exactly what the protections are. So you start by looking at Schedule 8, 
the actual legislation, but you back it up with looking at the guidance notes and they're, they're really helpful. And then the third thing is that I would keep an eye on the government's legislation website so that you know when the various statutory instruments are being passed so that you keep updated with the legislation as it comes through bit by bit. So at the moment, we just have two sets of regulations. We have two commencement regulations. So there are four statutory instruments in all, but these are going to come through and introducing different parts of the legislation over the next couple of years. So in order to keep updated with the way that the legislation is being introduced bit by bit, you need to monitor the statutory instruments as they come in. You're not going to find the answers within the legislation itself because that's just subject to statutory instruments. Thank you. I think on, on that last point, um, if anybody did look at my Google Alerts, I don't think they'd be okay, but it's quite boring. <laughs> it's things like Building Safety Act. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. Yeah, and also the, the, the government itself allows you to subscribe to email alerts when there have been material changes in building safety. So that's another way of keeping updated. Uh, but it's no substitute for getting, rolling your sleeves up and reading the legislation and the, and the guidance notes and, and the FTT decisions themselves. Super, well that just about brings us to the end of our time today. Rob, I'd like you to thank you for joining us and for your expert insight on the Building Safety Act and the practical advice and key takeaways for our audience. We will all be closely watching how this profound and significant act and secondary legislation embeds itself into industry and is ultimately shaped by law and by practice. Thank you for listening. My guests have been Thomas Nolan and Rob Bowker, and I hope you have enjoyed today's Denton's Property Litigation Podcast. Mm-hmm.